So, Berto, it was 20 years ago that 9-11 happened. September 11th happened in the United Oof. States. And I'll tell you how, what happened to me that day. You tell me what yeah, yeah. happened to you that day. But by, by the way, 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. Ugh. I woke up around 8 in the morning. And, you know, that's like 11 a.m. New York time, right? And I turn on the TV, and every channel, both towers had already fallen right, by that right. point. And there I think was the Pentagon was already hit. Too. Right. Yeah. There was all this talk. Of, it was this utter c- confusion and chaos, and worry of, well, we've had a report of one plane hitting it. We've had a report of another plane. We had a report of another plane. We had a, another report of another. At that point on the news, it was like, at this, at this hour we have thousands of planes in the air over the united states how many more dozens of planes are going to come out of the sky and kill people and it just felt like and there were rumors that there were other planes but there weren't you know it it just but four planes is enough to be terrified of and i remember looking at the the scenes on the news and and just how how scary and devastating and unnerving it was and how unreal it felt. And to see, you know, the World Trade Center was arguably one of the most, you know, that, that yeah. skyline, those two. So ta- iconic. Yeah, it, it, it was New York, it was America. Symbol it, of permanence, too. Yeah. And like buildings don't, you don't build those buildings and then take them down, right? Like, yeah. They're gonna be there, right? And and they don't just fall because no, something, you know, it it was it was just incredible. It would it was akin to a mountain being gone yep. in, in terms of the way it felt to me. And as soon as I saw it, within half a second, I knew. I, I just felt like I knew it. I knew this was gonna happen because wow. just a year earlier year and a half earlier it was the 1999 to 2000 new year's eve and i actually left seattle because i was there were threats right well or talk of a yeah. an attack on seattle or the space needle yeah right i remember that i was in in whistler at the time and i remember th- i remember thinking i want to get out of town because yeah i'm worried that there's going to be a dirty bomb or something and this was just a short while later, and yeah. I just thought, yeah, I mean, uh, with the, the things that had built up and the the reports from law enforcement that would catch people trying to get bombs in the United States, and it just seemed like it was inevitable. And so when it happened, I just thought, yep, I knew exactly who had did it, and I was right. Mm. I, I knew exactly what their ideology was, and I was right. Because, you know, they'd been attacking United States for years and years. They, yeah. they bombed the World Trade Center uh, a decade earlier. Yeah. So it, it just, and by they, I don't know if they're like a collective, but the interest of certain groups of people wanting to harm the United States or send a message right. to the United States. And also I had a dream and I don't believe that it was anything other than just coincidence, but I had a dream uh, almost a, you know exactly a month before 9/11 where I was in a I was in a city and I was looking up and I saw a plane a jet airplane jetliner that 
was really low to the ground and it was banking in a way that was turning toward me kind of yikes and i'm standing on ground level on the street and i see this you know 747 like lumbering overhead you know toward me and i and i look up and i'm standing right in front of a glass skyscraper <laughs> and this 747 just goes straight into the oh building above me and i uh felt rain and it was the jet fuel oh scary because in my head i i guess i thought jet fuel wouldn't automatically ignite right. the way that it did in 911 i guess and so all this jet fuel falls down on me and everyone else and i start screaming at everyone like you got to get careful yeah you got to get out you got to get away from any spark or anything yeah. cuz we're all going to go up in flames and so i thought if i ran into the building and ran out the other side i could get away from all the jet fuel and that's all i remember and wow uh, a stressful know, dream and a pretty uh, you know similar but of course yeah. you know I, I don't believe that uh there's some kind of supernatural well, thing you there. caused it kirk you caused it <laughs> right i think you said that the last time <laughs> i said that i talked about that dream um so and by the way just a little bit of dream research is that coincidences should happen um and when they do happen you should say yeah that that I'm, I was due for a coincidence, you know what I mean, with all the various coincidences, particularly with dream uh, coincidences. Anyway, the point is, is that when it happened, uh, it was just so, it was, it was, I had to work that day as a therapist. Mm. And I remember just being in a total daze. Yeah. Trying to help people. And I remember seeing planes overhead and just thinking like, are they going to, fly into one of the buildings and see i thought yeah. that for months after 9 11 yeah. i thought and every time i saw a plane because often they they sort of fly over downtown right right they, you know because the airport is just south of downtown and they fly lower by that point for sure right and it it always felt like oh is, is this is this the moment that it happens yeah. because again at the time it just felt like the planes were falling out of the sky anyway i remember that day and and i, I just remember seeing other people in their cars and thinking like how are you just driving to work? I, and I don't know what they were thinking, but I just sure. remember thinking like, how is life continuing? Just, just going on Yeah. when, when it's, ha it's happening today in New yeah. York. And I remember working with clients and being obviously really distracted, but there was the, those, and I don't remember any of the sessions except for this one session. I was working with a family, big family, lots of kids. And the kids were, you know, like eight to 14 or something. And I remember them, not being impacted negatively by it all, but it was all the buzz because it was all in the news. And they were talking about how they wished a plane would hit their school so they wouldn't have to go to school. Oh. And I remember thinking, oh my God. I, I mean, I almost lost it, but yeah. of course I was like, well, they're kids. They don't, yeah, yeah. they don't understand. And then of course, soon after that, we had the anthrax scare and it just felt like 50, 50 chance. I'm going to get killed by, some crazy attack by something like this. Yeah. It just it just felt that way, in a similar way to when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties. It felt like fifty fifty chance I was going to get killed by a nuclear holocaust. Right. <laughs> when we look back on that, it seems quaint. It's like, oh, you silly people, the seventies and eighties. But to people who think that, I say you weren't there. No. It was real. Ronald Reagan called the USSR the evil empire. They yeah. had 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of megatons pointed at each other at yep. any given moment. And there were moments where we actually didn't know that we were on the brink of yeah. complete you know, mutual annihilation because of some computer glitch. That it, it could have happened. It and, almost and we're happened. Talking about, by the way, computers. Computers. Yeah. Well, like, and also humans. But, but the computers of the time where it's yeah. like early computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I remember... So it was real and scary, and I would lie awake at night, as a lot of people of my generation did, just figuring, like, when's it going to happen? Yeah. And we look back, and we think that's quaint. And, and I, I'm worried that people will look back post-9-11 and go, like, well, isn't that quaint that we were worried about that? But right. I, I, I want, for the record, people to know that it was an event. It was horrific. It was scary. The terrorists... One, they got into oh, yeah. our hearts and minds effectively. Absolutely. It and it was, changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I, I don't want that to be forgotten to history. 20 years ago is long enough. I, I worry that people will think like, well, what were we worried about? Or, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, what was your experience, Bruno? Jeez. Well, so um, I was working... And um, we were just finished the product. Big project we had just finished. And me and a person that I used to be friends with, <laughs> we are spain- staying up all night because we are basically kind of doing the last preparations for, for finishing this project. And we are talking and we're drinking some beers and we're eating some leftover pizza and we're staying up all night, like not partially. No, we're just going to pull an all-nighter. And it's crazy because we're talking about all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, our conversation steers us into world affairs. And we start talking about um, how crazy it is that uh, we are at such risk of, you know, someone doing like a crazy despot or someone attacking us or a war breaking out. And then we started talking about potential, you know, the, the potential for a dirty bomb. And we, have, we had these conversations. So and, you caused it. Yeah, I caused it. Exactly. And that was, that was, you know, I don't know. That was our conversation that night after singing songs, because we were also singing uh, to all these 80s songs and everything. 6 a.m. rolls around. And we, um, someone arrives very early. And they're like pale. We're like, what's happening? Like, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And and I say, oh, that's weird. Like, I totally underreact. I'm like, that's weird. That that can't be right. Well, maybe it happened. It seems like a weird accident. Then, no, 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 no. Another plane then hit the other tower. And I'm like what no and so we walk into a room a conference room we turn on cnn and we're like what what we start watching so this is at 6 a.m so it's just happened like you know a few minutes before or whatever but already the two towers have been hit and they're like you know smoke and fires coming out so you've been up all night we've been up all night so and we've just been talking about terrorism and world well, it, wars, but, but it doesn't and surprise nuclear me. wars. But it doesn't surprise me because 
It was it that was, time, right? It was in the air. You it was know, in the air. Nine eleven didn't wake us up to something. No, it was. No, it it was, was in the air. It was something that we knew was going to happen. It, it's true. And so, but we're sitting there in that conference room, in kind of a delirium because we've been up all night. We've just been talking about this kind of stuff, and now, like you said, the arguably most iconic, other maybe Statue of Liberty or something thing, is up in flames. Two of them. So did you watch them fall? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Not only that, when the Pentagon was hit, we were watching CNN. So when the Pentagon was hit, me and this other person, and by now there were about five of us in the conference room, but the two of us burst out laughing. And like a couple of people were like, what's wrong with you? But because we could not believe what was happening. How many are in the conference room? Like five people. And to me, I burst out laughing because I thought, it, it was like this moment of, okay, we're in a simulation. Like, this is not real. Yeah, the, pen, the Pentagon being hit was such a shocker because you just have all these visions of, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. with, like, or Born Ultimatum. They have lasers, right? Yeah, they got they got <laughs> missiles and lasers and, and, you know, they scramble. Apache helicopter. They scramble the jets. And, yes. And, and yet. You can't hit the Pentagon. Yeah, you, you can hit the World Trade Center, maybe. Yeah. But not the Pentagon. But not the Pentagon. That's the, not the Pentagon. That's arguably should be, aside from the White House, the most impenetrable <laughs> place on the earth. certainly not right after two planes hit the World Trade Center. Yeah. Like, if that was the first target, maybe. Right. We were unprepared. Right. I don't know how, but we were unprepared. Yeah. But certainly, at that point, we're on high alert. Yeah. And just side note, <laughs> the, whenever people like QAnon points out like right. that... The government is this massive conspiracy. All you got to do is point to just moments like that and realize yes. that the government is just a bunch of people that are that are not just as incompetent as like Verizon or T-Mobile is. You know what I mean? And are just arriving at work and the world's falling over, right? Yeah. So, and that that's an important thing to realize that the people that pulled this off had been planning this, right? So they know what's happening. Everyone else doesn't know what's happening. Right. I mean, granted, some analysts knew that something might have been about to happen. But the average employee at all these places has no clue. Okay. So there I'm sitting. We're kind of cracking up because we're starting to think. Uh, and I remember us saying this. If this were a movie, we would walk out right now. Right. That's bullshit. This can't happen. Right. Anyways, we're sitting there. And the, the full reality of what you were saying, like everything has changed now. Because we're like, what is happening? Are we at war? And I had this other thought in my head. I had moved... 10 years prior, wait, 1999, 2000, yeah, like uh, 11 years prior, from a place that was at, essentially at civil war, and where they had bombed the equivalent of the FBI building and demolished it. It wasn't called the FBI, of course, but it was the equivalent. They, where, what do you mean they demolished it? Yeah, the, the equivalent of the FBI building in Bogota, it was called the DAS, Depart Department of Automatic, I can't remember, but anyways. It was attacked with bombs and it was destroyed. Tons of people died. But that was only one of like the many tragic, crazy events. And I had gone through all that, but I thought I was safe. I thought I was insulated. So all of a sudden seeing this on TV and on such a large scale, I was re-traumatized. I'm like, yeah. and oh God. And we're in the Pacific Northwest, which yeah. is arguably one of the furthest places away from New York in, in the United States. And... We were terrified. Imagine, no, we were oh, imagine being in the Northeast. No, I, I can't. It's yeah. just... So I'm sitting there. All these thoughts are going through my head. And, and the same thing you were saying. We're like, 
Which so we're like we're supposed to like work today. Right. We're supposed to go and work today. I remember that day was very unproductive. A lot of us went out to lunch and sat there looking at each other, just like, "What the hell is happening?" Yeah. And I really got into. I, I I've talked before in the podcast that um, when the O.J. Simpson trial happened, I had this weird reaction to it where I got addicted to watching the trial on TV, and I would skip out on classes from college, and I was glued to the couch, and there was something weird about it, like a, like. And, and I, I remember that feeling of, but wait a minute, he's clearly guilty. That was my perception because I had seen him run away in that chase. And so I thought, he's clearly guilty. Why are we even having a trial? And I, I understand it's a very naive notion, but I remember being like so confused about what what, what is happening. Why is there no reality? Why is truth so el- elusive? It's scary. It's scary. And I remember I talked to my therapist about this. Um, truth as a little child for me became very evasive because I was like, why did my mom leave? Why are my parents divorced? And I would ask my dad, why can't you just make up and get back together? And he'd say, no, we can't. But why not? We just can't. It doesn't work that way. But why not? So I think I had some trauma about like not having answers and truth. And then, and, and then trauma around violence and terrorism. Exactly. So I had already. And, and your solution, <laughs> part, apparently, is to soothe your anxiety by news consumption. Yes, exactly. So when 9 11 happened, I had the same problem. I would lie there on the couch late into the night, waiting for the next shoe to drop. What else is happening? What else is happening? And it was really weird and not healthy and scary. Um, well, what was that like? Like, paint us a picture. So. I would be I would be back from work. We'd have like dinner. I had a roommate at the time, and we maybe watch you know a show. But then I would turn to CNN and Fox and whatever was on, and I would just watch the news cycle. And then it would get later and later. It's like now one a.m. in the morning. I'm and super they're just reporting sleepy. on like. So here's a shot of the rubble. Yeah, there's here, just here, more, here's yeah. an interview with someone who was ground zero. No more truth. No more truth. There's no more truth to be had. There's no more answers. Yeah. Just more. And, and what's going on emotionally for you? What? Or how are you feeling? What are you? What are you looking for? I I know that I wasn't self aware at the time because I didn't really put this together till later when I was in therapy. But looking back on it, I was waiting for an answer as to why has this happened, and I was waiting for a solution. Like, what are we doing about it? And I was waiting for comfort. Like. Don't worry, help is on the way. You know, like it's gonna be okay. And and <laughs> I, I definitely talked to my therapist about this because so w- when when my mom left me, I was she left me sitting on a little couch watching TV, right, with a, a little fruit. And I think there must have been a connection. Like I'm on the couch, I'm watching TV, and this is the only thing I've got. Mm. Felt lonely. And it felt scary. I was just like, even when I had my roommate next to me and we were both kind of like talking about how crazy it was, I still felt very lonely. Like, wow, you know, and that lasted for, I don't know, like a year maybe, or I don't even remember. Yeah. Have you been to the Memorial in New York City? I haven't. I, 
So, I went to New York City before they built the memorial, but after 9-11. You saw the hole. And I saw the hole. Yeah. And I went up in the Viacom building, and I talked to people that were in the building when it happened. Yeah. And they were describing, like, the horrific experience of seeing that happen. I went to the memorial, uh, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, and it was amazing. It's essentially... Well, how do I describe it? it? It's visually compelling. Yeah. It's a big space. It's not just like a little hallway. You mm-hmm. know, it's it it's it's got a huge I can't describe it, but this the most impactful exhibit is you walk through it's not like a typical museum. It's almost like um an experience. Wow. I think they got some of their inspiration from the Holocaust. The Holocaust, Muse- I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, where, because you think museum, it's like, oh, here's this display, and yeah. here's, here's a video being played, and here's a memorabilia bit, you know, like right, a right. museum for... And you hold those those crappy little audio devices. Yeah, <laughs> you press the button. It wasn't anything like that. You There was this one hallway that kind of meanders, it, and, and you're kind of disoriented by what you're looking at and then you hear these voices okay as you're walking and you can only hear them if you're in a particular zone and it's people leaving voicemails who are in the oh, building oh god oh oh they're just like you know hey oh. honey i'm in the building and it just got hit and oh my i gosh. can't the elevators aren't working and i've been here for a half an hour. I've already seen the other tower fall, and I just want to tell you I love you. You know that kind of stuff. And they oh have pictures of of people jumping. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. And it, I, I was, it's traumatizing on a certain level, but I respected how they really went for it and said like, "Look, this is what happened. You got to know what happened." Yeah. These are the people. Yeah. And you can't just gloss over that. Yeah. And the also the, uh, I don't know what you call it, but the park, the Memorial Park that they right, have right. is very moving as well and effective, affecting. That's a beautiful park. And then next door, there's a fire department. Mm-hmm that you can kind of walk up to. And then of course, across the street is the giant new world trade center. And it's this giant, interesting kind of looking building. And it just stands there and defiance. defiance. Oh yeah. I was going to (laughs) say. And like, uh, and, and a symbol to American survivorship or capitalism or both. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what, so then, ten years ago, uh, almost you know to this month, my friend, you know, you met him, Wyatt. Mm-hmm. He uh, went to Afghanistan. He was special forces. He died in Af- Afghanistan yep. ten years ago. Special forces. Um, he was in his late twenties, I think, when he died. He's from a small town, Eastern Washington. Tall dude, strong dude, smart. Special forces material. Yeah. Quiet, caring, fun guy, idealistic. 
he wanted to make the world a better place yeah. by helping the innocent. A big part of his job was actually training the Afghan army. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, working on you know engagements alongside. So there'd be like a 50 Afghan army deployment, and then uh-huh. him and his like eight other special forces would assist mm. with tactics and um, you know optics and intelligence and and they were always trying to help you know get the Afghan army on their feet so that they could if they could fight yeah. Taliban and other kinds of um, and, you know say what you will about the politics of the area but it, for him he thought he was making the world a better place and he thought right. that uh, it was just a matter of time before the Afghan army was strong enough and the Afghan people were progressive, progressive enough beyond fundamentalism yeah. and would allow for rights for women and democracy and, you know, all the things that we hold dear. Yep. And some Afghanistan, you know, Af- Afghan, Afghani? Afghani. Afghani people uh, respect as well. Obviously not, not all. And then... And he, he had been to Iraq, he'd been to Afghanistan many times, and had been shot many times. And I, he would tell me stories. I won't tell he the story. He had been shot many times? Oh, he had been shot once. He had been injured once. Okay. But shot at all. Uh, but shot at a lot. And he had, you know, he'd killed a lot of people, too. Um, I would, it would take a lot to kind of get it out of him. Because, you know, at the time, it was just, it was, you know, it was late... 2000s right so it's like 2007 2008 2009 it was the afghanistan war was still kind of new even though it was like seven eight years old right and i just wanted to know from and he always had these really intelligent things to say about what was happening because you know for me as a lay person i'm just like why are we over there this is stupid but he'd say well yeah but ddd da 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 and he would explain like all the different factors and and I just remember realizing that as a layperson, I had no idea yeah, yeah. what we were doing there, why we were there, what was actually happening, what was the, you know, I, as a person who watched the news, I just was completely ignorant. But you were also not helped by, the, it's not like our leaders clearly explained in right. transparent ways yeah. what the heck our plans were. Right. Well, because the populace are a bunch of idiots and... So that, let's not give them the right information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. The things you would say that I was really quite convinced of, I just remember thinking, my God, this is complex. This yeah. is like way beyond, I'm guessing, what politicians even understand. Oh, you know? sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, it's, it's like in any industry where if you, if you climb up the ranks enough, yeah. you start losing touch with um, the... Um, in GE, they used to, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to have a rule that you had to spend X amount of time every year working a day or like working on the factory floors or or like to like understand what the heck's happening at the ground level. (laughs) Yeah. So he had been there many times. He'd been injured. There'd been all these scares and others had died. And then I got the call this one day that he had died. He, He was helping some Afghani soldiers and a RPG went off above him and hit a wall uh his what they call teammates explain this whole thing to me and because he you know he has all this armor on but the uh, shrapnel went through his uh where his clavicle is like from above where you don't have any armor yeah 
and went straight through his heart and his lungs and everything. Oh, brutal, man. And oh. and he died right there. And uh, it was uh, it was awful. The o- the only hope is that it was instant. Yeah. And I wondered about that, and I would ask his buddies about that, that who were there. I was like, "Was it fast?" Um, because it seems like it would have been. Yeah. But I, I never got, or at least I don't remember getting a very firm answer. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe yeah. it was. It's hard for them to tell. But anyway, then um, I was close enough to him and his family that I went to all the memorials yeah. at the base i went to the memorials at in his hometown in eastern washington i was with the family i was with the teammates as they call them the other military guys i was there um through all of that stuff and um then like months later his so his like best friend in the military his like main other special forces guy died in a motorcycle accident oh my god he was i believe driving recklessly it's just is my speculation yeah but driving reckless recklessly in a back country at the middle of the night i think out of you know toying with death i think because I because of the grief that that's the story i tell myself i don't know if it's true but yeah. but there. You know, there's so much I could say about these military guys because the way that they lived, it was this vacillation between several extreme states. Mm, They'd be deployed where there'd be long stretches of boredom and then extreme moments of terror and death. Right. And depending on your brothers to, you know, essentially kill on your behalf you know it's yep. you're not just doing a mission you're you're out to kill you know yeah. and and it's it's us or them kind of a thing and then they'd come back to the states and a lot of people didn't even know we were over there yeah you know it's not like world war ii where everyone knows right, we're right. at war there there are whole swaths of americans like we're still in afghanistan yeah they just don't even know and so there's no you know uh, there's no parade. There's 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 nothing. There's no interviews. It's like where were you? Oh, I was deployed in Afghanistan. Oh, cool. Yeah, and the best depiction I've seen of this, from what I understand, is from Hurt Locker when he comes back and he's right. And he's going through the grocery store, yeah. and there's the music playing, and he's like <laughs> looking at cereal, and he, he's just like, what, <laughs> what is this? This is so surreal, right? And and I got the impression that that and the way that they coped with it was to be brothers stateside as well and they mm-hmm. lived together roommates and stuff and they partied hard so i i wonder if there's also a correlation between the oh, so my one of my best friends in life uh, is in colombia i don't know if you met him when you were there juan miguel i don't know i don't think you met him oh. he was special forces in colombia back when he served and and at the time that was almost kind of a death sentence because it was when they were fighting Pablo Escobar and the whole nine yards and the FARC, like everything. But he he volunteered to be in the special forces. The service was mandatory, but he didn't have to volunteer for special forces. But he wanted to, and he did. The, the service whole thing. was so. If you had stayed in Bogota, I would have had to serve. Well, it's lottery. It's oh, lottery. yeah. How, what's the percentage? And it's pretty high. <laughs> like fifty percent, something like that. Yeah. Oh like my a god, a lot of people had to serve. 
Wow. I never thought about that, that you, if you would have stayed another few years, you would have been in the military. I could have easily been in the military and could have easily died. Wow. So he, um, he served, he, he volunteered to be in the special forces. He went through a whole thing. And then afterwards he worked as a bodyguard. He worked as like, and he rides motorcycles and he paraglides. He takes a lot of risks. Right. And I, I've always wondered about, and he got in a lot of fights like afterwards, you know? So yeah, like if there's like some weird correlation, is it cause or effect? You know? I think it's both. I yeah. think that, uh, you know, on average, if you're more of a thrill seeker, mm. more of an extreme sports kind of person, and frankly, a lot of young dudes are like that anyway, yeah. right? Then you're more likely to want to be a part of the most elite military force. Because, I mean, even the training stories that Wyatt would tell me, were, <laughs> yeah. were like there's this one story where... They were training on uh, on parachuting. I don't know what you call it, <laughs> but parachuting into a war zone, right. and you would have to pull your ripcord at the last possible moment because Oof. you need to it's, just enough to not die. <laughs> yeah, because well, it was nighttime, and you're trying to be stealth, you right. know. And so, him, the whole team, jump out, and they have an instructor, a military instructor, and they all jump out together. And Wyatt's uh, his ripcord wasn't working. And so he um, went to his reserve and was trying to do that. And it wasn't working. Oh my God. And it, you, you know, you don't have much time no, to go. No, and no. my hands are sweating, just telling oh, the story. Yeah. And he's, he's on his back going down and, you know, you know 2000 feet, you know, 1500 feet. And he's, and he's like, well, I guess this is it. And the instructor comes back, like flying, flying in and grabs him, wrestles with his rip cords, pulls the chute oh just before the, you know, the Holy last possible moment crap. and lands. <laughs> it was just, it, we would tell this story, you know, sometimes and he, you know, an hour later is uh, at, at the mess hall or something, you know, with everyone. And he's just sitting there kind of, chilling out and his superior comes up to him and just like Wyatt like dude like I heard what happened yeah. like how you doing and Wyatt's like huh <laughs> uh, it, it, it was like you know I heard that your your shoot didn't work and the instructor hit and Wyatt's like yeah well you know I, it happens <laughs> I, it all it all worked out in the end Jeez. you know that that's a different whereas kinda, you and I would be like for years yeah. like <laughs> Oh my god! I can't believe I barely survived. I'd I'd start a podcast called like Parachute Ripcord Problems or something. <laughs> um, and and so uh, yeah, and then and also yeah, well, like, like sorry, I, like I'm thinking, you know, my stories. I'm like, and then I got pulled over by the cops, and oh my god! And then I thought they were gonna tow the car, and then there was a there was a um, there was floss in the toilet in the toilet. Yeah. Um, so did you lift the flap? And um. <laughs> He, but then of course, when they would come back, it was stuffing emotions. Right. It was pain. It was loss. It was trauma, <laughs> and a lot of drinking. Mm. Uh, just a lot of booze. And right. Uh, and, you know, because I I dragged you out sometimes when he would yeah, he yeah. would come to town and and we would go out because he lived in Tacoma because you know, the base is down there. Yep. He would come up to Seattle, and then uh, I don't know how many how many times did I drag you out with me and with with I don't remember enough. <laughs> I remember there's this one time that, that I think about him. We were at that 
that old bar in, on Capitol Hill. Oh, yeah. And someone put in Mr. Brightside over and over again. Was it me, maybe? <laughs> I hope not. Do you remember that? <laughs> I love Mr. Brightside. I do remember that, yes. Yeah. And we were playing pool. Yeah. And we probably ended up at Neighbors or something. Anyway. That was a fun night. Yeah. I think I have video from... Anyway, point is, is lots of partying, lots of drinking, and lots of... Um, they would play games where they would kick each other in the stomach as hard as they could and see like his game of chicken, essentially. Sure. And they would, they would kick each other hard in the stomach. Right. You know? Um, I mean, I used to do that punching your arm, not you, but like, yeah, it was like, okay, we're going to punch each other's arm and whoever gives up first. Right. Yeah. But kicking the stomach is a step up from that. Yeah. <laughs> they would tase each other for fun. Okay. That's, oh, geez. Kind of, kind of thing. And, uh, it was, it was a lot of machismo. It was a lot of love. Yeah. It was a lot of pain. It was a lot of live in the moment because you don't know if you're going to have any more moments. It was a lot of uncertainty. And, um, anyway, so I, I wrote a song for Wyatt that I thought I'd play right now. Oh, um, Because he died 10 years ago, and it has to do with 9-11. Because he signed up be- because, of because of 9-11, yeah. and he, I don't think he was going to be in the military before that. Mm. So the lyrics are pretty clear, but the last line that uh, is that we, we, I went there, you know, the military um, uh, burial at the, great, at the cemetery mm-hmm. was... Um, we got there, you know, it's the, the, you know, the, the general is there and all, the full, uh, military, yeah, all, the full. all the people and, and, and all the family and friends and everything. And, and we're driving to the cemetery, this long procession, and there's all these people on the side of the road, like saluting. And yeah. you have like firefighters with their engines and all, you know, just this huge, the whole town yeah. of Colville, Washington, um, which is North of Spokane, pretty desolate out there, but Anyway, get to the cemetery, and it's a nice day. And as um, they're, you know, walking up, the military guys are carrying Wyatt's uh, casket to the grave. It suddenly starts to rain like nothing else, oh. like sideways rain, oh. like just like just, you know. And this is the middle of the summer. Yeah. Which it doesn't rain out there very often. <laughs> you know, Spokane is pretty dry, yeah. that area. And everyone is just getting just soaked. Drenched. And um, the military, and there's all these speeches being said, and I can't even hear what's being said because <laughs> oh, no. of the rain. And the military guys are really in the rain. Yeah. And they have to be very stoic, right? They right. have to stand at attention without making any move. And, and I just remember watching, you know, cause all of us were, you know, we're huddling and, 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 and like uh, <laughs> complaining. And these military guys are just standing there. Like, like it's not even raining. And then we get him in the ground and then the rain stops. And the thing Weird. about Wyatt and all of his friends was they had a very morbid sense of humor, you know? Uh-huh. And I just, and I think this was said by, you know, his friends was that, he probably did that to to troll everybody. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? He called the reins down. Right. So that's what the last line has to do with that. I see. Wyatt, please, 
Why'd you leave? Is it true you were alive? Where'd you go? Was it fast? Was it too let out a sigh? Did you laugh at the rain as it filled your grave? He gave eternally to live eternally. He gave eternally. He volunteered to come alive. Anyway, it goes on for that. Let's take a break and we'll get back. I want to switch gears and talk about the man who caused 9-11, Osama bin Laden. Okay. And talk about who he was and maybe why he did it. Let's do it. So, Berto, do you know anything about Osama bin Laden and his psychology? Only what's known. (laughs) I mean, I know that he came from a very wealthy Saudi family, and I know that he was um, sort of our ally uh, back in the time when Russia was fighting in Afghanistan. Um, And I know that he was, you know, uh, he had firm beliefs about... Uh, what he thought was right and wrong, and uh, therefore he saw, at least this is what's publicized, you know, he saw the U.S. as uh, as an enemy, um, no longer an ally. If everything is to be believed, he was clearly a, a very smart planner and a very, 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 very dedicated warrior to their cause. Uh, and unfortunately for us, that, you know, seems like our target, we were the target. And they also planned something that was more effective than they probably even imagined. Uh, that said, that's where my knowledge ends. I, I Everything else is myth. I, I've seen the videos of him talking. I've seen the information about his, his death, but I don't really know much more about it. Yeah. I Before prepping for this episode, or while I was beginning to prep, I had this weird feeling that when... People do weird things, like if there's a mass shooter or something. There's usually a question by some people of, well, why did he do it? What yeah. what was the cause? There must be some kind of reason for that. Like, you don't just shoot up a mall for no reason. Right. Right? There's got to be something there. But when it came to Osama bin Laden, for some reason, I don't remember anyone ever talking about that. Like, No, it was verboten. Because it was, I remember, in fact, it was seen as, like, that's the wrong question. We need to go and get revenge. We need to make this right. Um, but it who was ne- knows why they do those crazy things, right? I think it was more that it was more. Yeah. Well, they're just crazy terrorists. Who knows why they would do anything? Because everyone they hate our freedoms. Right? They hate us. Remember, they right. hate us. Right? It's it's their religion or yeah. their culture. And oh, that was the other one. It's the religion. Right. right. That's the, even though 90.9999% of everyone of that religion would never do such a thing and has never done such a thing. Uh, somehow it's, you know, just written in their Bible that they're right. supposed to kill Americans or something. And it just never, I just don't remember, I don't, maybe I was out of the loop, but I don't remember anyone ever saying like, well, what kind of psychological problem must someone have? to dedicate their entire life to killing 
millions of trying to kill millions of people or trying to affect you know millions of people in a negative way it it just never now maybe that's not the only question i know that's not the only question that should be asked you know other questions need to be asked too like well why do a group of people want to kill us you know what are we doing as americans to other countries both militarily and economically and colonialization wise that's causing them to dislike us you know when people resort to violence it's usually because they asked nicely many times before that (laughs) but there is a part of this that i never quite could understand because they again i'm just maybe i'm too naive but if if i am to believe the videos and the the propaganda and everything they seemed very organized and smart to a certain extent but the thing that i never understood was like the end game on their end because certainly right. they must have anticipated that there would be a, a a war response and they obviously weren't prepared like they certainly weren't ready to like fight a war and so was you know i i kept thinking so maybe it was that right they really just wanted the psychological damage well, that seems so sophisticated. Though. But to, to me, it, I, that was my whole ignorant layperson point of view was, can we just ask them what they want? Because I'm pretty sure we'll do uh, something along the lines of what they want rather than having to live in fear of this. Whole, like, is there kind of a treaty we can, can we reason? I mean, are they looking for us to be out of a certain country? Which uh, they did, right? They said... Step one, you got to remove every American presence from all our holy lands, right? Step two, you got to stop side. I mean, I, I'm not, this is not verbatim, but like, you got to stop siding with Israel, right? And, and then there were other things too. But, but I think that's, that's still weird to me, like, because it wasn't like, I don't remember it had the getting op- an it ultimatum the- right. as a country. Like, here's your last chance. Here's our list of demands. If you don't do this, Bad things will happen. Now, maybe they didn't do that because then we'd be on high alert. I don't know. Because the CIA guys were saying that we should be on high alert because that's what they were saying. Now, of course, I don't know what, you know, what Wyatt and others would tell me is this. That's the that's the simple perspective. The behind the scenes are, you know, you have warlords who are trying to get power. You have groups of people who hate each other for long-standing reasons. You have resource grabs. You have political grabs. And in the same way that some politicians in our country will just arbitrarily target another country for jingoistic reasons and to get votes, yep. uh, there are other politicians you know, or other uh, leaders in other countries that will do the same thing, that will uh, scapegoat the United States or whatever as a way of you know, raising the flag and getting getting votes and getting power. So there's all these uh, systemic reasons as to why uh, these things happen. But anyway, I, I just find it interesting that I've never heard anyone do a psychohistory on Osama bin Laden until mm-hmm. I came across uh, this uh, write-up by Colin Ross, which uh, it's titled, uh, 2015, titled The Psychological Profile of Osama Bin Laden Interesting. in the Journal of Psychohistory. And for those of you interested in psychohistory, because I know a lot of you are, like, why was Hitler the way he was, or that sort of thing, you can subscribe. Because of his secure attachment, remember? Well, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's look into it. 
All right. So 1957, born in Saudi Arabia. His parents, uh, father, Muhammad. And according to Islam, uh, um, and most of this info, info is from Colin Ross, by the way, with my speculation sprinkled in. Um, father Muhammad bin Laden, uh, according to Islam, a man is allowed to have four marriages. And many wealthy Saudis had three permanent wives, and then they would rotate in a fourth wife. Oh, rotate in. Like, uh, I see. Like, we're sticking to the word of the law, not the intent. <laughs> right. So they would marry these fourth wives and divorce them and marry and divorce and marry and divorce. Oh, what? I only had four at a time. <laughs> right. His mother, one of these rotated in fourth wives, Hamida, was his 11th wife. So it would have been like his seventh fourth wife, right? Wow. She was 22 from Syria when she married him, and she was more westernized than the other women in her society and in the family. She was defiant, progressive, and independent, according to Colin Ross, and thus was ostracized by the larger family, by the other, hmm. uh, you know, the other wives, and she was sent away. Uh, by the way, uh, Muhammad, so uh, Osama bin Laden has 53 siblings. Okay. <laughs> so, and Osama, Osama is somewhere in the middle. Uh, so his mother was sent away. Now, and of course, the father has 54 children and, you know, dozens of wives. So he spends a lot of quality time with every one of them. So Osama, abandoned by mother for reasons out of the mother's control. Oh, and, he didn't go with the mom. Okay, okay. Right, right. So the mom Got was it. sent away, but Osama, Osama stayed. Oh, geez. So abandoned by father. Yeah. Bullied by his siblings and stepmothers because he was considered like the black sheep because the mother right, was considered right. the black sheep. You know, the mother was seen as like this this decadent, Western, oh. terrible, right. sinful. And they called her like the slave, and they called him the slave's child, the slave, oh my goodness. The, the slave boy. Chip on shoulder. Right. So he's alone, he's scared, and he was reportedly shy back then. So my speculation, again, chip on shoulders, you're saying, is a constant sense that he's unlovable, no one's there for him, people are against him, and that uh, probably encouraged him to, av to develop avoidant attachment, which you've heard me all talk about before in which you turn off access to your emotions and mm. subsequently also your empathy for other people. And why should you care about other people? Right, you're right. Be, you've been abandoned by your mom, your dad, and you're in a, a den of, of lions that yeah. are trying to get you. You can also de uh, develop defensive narcissism of I'm in it for myself. Who knows? But it's possible that he de developed uh, narcissism defensively and had a grandiose vision of his life for the future, a secret grandiose vision for his life and a need to assert his superiority in a noticeable way. And, uh, you know, when you're bullied and you feel alone, one, a bastion that some people will turn to is a secret superior fantasy. Who knows? There's no evidence that he had that, but, you know, we could see a, the possibility of that given what he got himself into later because it's one thing for someone in his society to hate Americans or to have political views that are a little extreme. It's one, th it's another thing to like actually take actions uh, later in life to, you know, materially enact your hatred of other people. You know what I mean? Um, you could develop schemas in his situation. He's abandoned by mom, abandoned by dad in, in a den full of bullies 
that the world is against you and you have to defend yourself all the time, that you feel superior, and that you might want to get revenge. Um, other events that might have shaped his psychology is that his father was really into religious debate. And Osama spent a lot of time as a child in his room reading about religion, reportedly. So speculation, uh, he might have been trying to get his father's love from a very distant place. I mean, again, imagine being a middle child of 54 kids and you're the black sheep. See, I, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And you are trying to get your father's love. Yeah. And you know, well, I know he's really into religion, so maybe if I get really into religion. And I see this happening in families all the time where kids will, like, you'll have a, a family where the dad is in prison. And the kid misses his dad. Yeah. And he turns 15 and he starts committing petty crimes because of a subconscious urge to bond to with, that. with that yeah. or you. Well, yeah. Um, another event that would happen occasionally for him is that the father Muhammad would take uh, a lot of the boys camping in the desert and they would, uh, you know, ride horses and camels and they would sleep in tents and they would shoot guns and they would cook on the, you know, by the fire, and it was, you know, it was in the desert, and it was in Saudi Arabia, I believe, and it was this fun time. And for Osama, he shined in this environment, probably because he was desperate for his father's attention, but also maybe he just took to that sort of thing, and he rode well, and he became kind of a leader. And so, speculation, who knows, that during these times he felt he could get some self-esteem that he suddenly for the first time in his life was able to have some self-respect. Like, look at me, I, I, I'm good at something mm. and I'm getting attention from my dad. And what are the elements of this? Roughing it, being in the desert, riding horses, riding yeah. camels, shooting guns, being a leader, <laughs> you know, it seems like yep, it might yep. pl planted a seed. Um, he had a lot of losses in his life. Obviously, his mom and his dad abandoning him. Father died in a helicopter crash when he was 10. He had a best friend, a Saudi prince, who was his best friend when he was, you know, in grade school. And around this time, the prince rejected him. And so he lost his best friend, felt rejected in all likelihood. And his brother, who was very Western, one of his brothers, and married an English art student woman, lived in uh, the Western world, very rich family, obviously, so they lived all over the world. And he died in a hang glider accident in Texas, by the oh, way. Wow. So just the, you know, Bush yep. connection, <laughs> just kind of a random. Um, and speculation, uh, another reason to hate the United States, the decadence of the United States killed my brother kind of a thing. Who knows? Uh, we'll never know the answer to these questions, but, you know, you could see uh, some themes there. 1973, age 16, he goes to a fancy boarding school near Beirut. And this is, you know, closer to Westernization at the time. There's There are bars, there's strip clubs, there are prostitutes, sex workers. And he became a decadent Western playboy. 
Oh, in, I didn't know this. In his seniors, yeah. Drank a lot, spent a lot of money, strippers, sex workers, got into fights, uh, reportedly drank a lot, actually. Okay. Um, spent time at ski resorts with his Christian girlfriend. He was Wait, what? Yeah, he was just a, you know, a regular 16-year-old fancy okay. rich boy. Yeah. You know, uh, drove nice cars. What year is this? The seven, early 70s. 70s. So he's a teenager. Wow. And a lot of his brothers were doing the same thing, by the way, and a lot of his friends, you know, the Saudi princes, you know, the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the stereotype, right? Uh, 1977, he turns 20, and he had had a number of years of partying hard, and he went to Mecca and had like a religious <laughs> awakening, and he turned away from the quote-unquote Western life. He became very religious. And so my speculation, you know, Berto, you might be able to relate to this, is there are times when the partying kind of takes its toll yeah. and you wake up one morning and just say, I'm not doing this anymore. No mas. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that feeling, Bruno. Well, unfortunately, I used to have that feeling often. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a difference, though. There's the uh, You wake up after a night of a lot of drinking. You're like, oh, God, I'm not ever doing that again. But, um, but at the, there's kind of a different level of it, which is, um, I'd say that it's not the day after, but for me it was, there was a realization at one point about uh, the danger I would put my body in and myself in as a result of my behaviors. And so over time that became more of a, oh, okay, I, I, there's certain lines that I need to be careful not to cross. Um, and it's... It's part of growing old too, I think, and also having enough damage happen. Like not literally just physical damage, but also emotional damage, uh, broken relationships or uh, friendships or or, um, or just even close calls or things where you look back, you're like, wow, something really bad could have happened. Yeah, so imagine also you're desperate for your f- father's love, even though he's, he's dead, but yeah. you want his approval. Probably the family's approval. Yeah. Yeah. And society's approval, maybe. You feel like you're against your religion. Because in our cultural pocket in the United States, to be a young college douchebag and drinking all the time, the alternative is just to be kind of like, you kind of drink every once in a while instead of constantly a lot. So... The contrast for Osama was I can fall into religious fundamentalism quite easily, right? Right. And there's a, there's a world there, a, a, a savior, you know, and we see this happen with some people will become sober, clean and sober, and they will turn to religion and they'll become extremely into it. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing. You know, people say, oh, now you're addicted to AA or you're addicted to religion. I'm just like... It's not really an addiction if it's good for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're you're into it, but it's not it's not a destructive force necessarily. And so, uh, I'm just imagining again. I'm just reading, and it's I, it's hard to know what what someone was going through. But he's 20, lots of years of partying, probably a lot of self hatred. I'm guessing because yep. of the way he was treated, a lot of drinking, to, trying trying to find himself. And and it would be hard to differentiate among 54 people, right? Yeah. Like. I, 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 this is part of the thing that's so hard for me to understand. I have one brother, and we are super competitive with each other. 
and we're always trying to differentiate. I have one brother. Yeah, 54 is I like a small town. You don't know? understand what it would be like when I am one of 54. Of course, but if you can actually become the most pious, the most whatever, that that's a way to differentiate. <laughs> right. So here's my main speculation, is that he, he again, this is really just shooting in the dark, but uh, it's a possible explanation. He would have to be here for us to bounce this off him to see if this was accurate or, or seem, seems accurate. But And it's basically psychobabble to begin with, so there's no way to prove any of this. But, <laughs> but there's this thing called splitting that was developed by Genet and... Uh, in the late 1800s. And yeah, the, I saw that movie. It's, it's M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. So when we split as children, when we're very young, infants and toddlers and young children, we have a hard time with gray zones. We have a hard time with nuance. So we either see things as all good or all bad. Mm. You have the, you know, you, you have Frodo and you have Sauron. <laughs> you have... The Republicans and you have Democrats, you know, whatever your uh, flavor of choice there is. You can only see good. You see, you see that uh, mommy is good. And, you know, that dog across the street is all bad. Right. Mommy is all good. Doggy across the street, all bad. Instead of mommy's good most of the time. Right. But sometimes she's not so great. And the, and the dog across the okay, but he dog, has been known to bite. <laughs> right. The dogs across the street is kind of scary, but I'm sure the dog's good. Um, and so we think that way because we're unsophisticated when we're young. We don't understand things yet. Right. And we, because of our lack of sophistication we and our lack of, it's not only do we lack the sophistication to understand nuance, but we also kind of depend on a lack of nuance to help us cope because as we are, and this is all psychoanalytic developmental theory is that as you're, you know, you're two years old and you're, you're like, you're, you go to your parents and they're there for you and they pay attention to you and they feed you and they cuddle with you. And it's, it's just like, it's, you're, you're so you're as a child, you, you need that so badly. And so right. you're going to, and your parents are, they listen and they're there and they're safe and they protect you. And it just, it, you just bask in the, the wonderfulness of the safety and the goodness. And then, and then daddy says, it's time to go to bed. You need to, you can't watch that TV anymore. We're going to have to turn off frozen and you're going to bed. (laughs) Well, as a kid, that's devastating. You know, we tend to look at three, four year olds, you know, when they're throwing a temper tantrum is like, ah, it's kind of quaint. It's like, it's just frozen. Right. You'll you've, get over it. You've watched it 50 times. You've watched it as many Bin Laden kids as there are. And it's fine. Um, but, and sometimes they are manipulative kids and they, they're, <laughs> they're ramping it up as a way to get their way. But sometimes, often, it is legit devastation. Right. Because they can't comprehend time. They don't understand like, well, I'll be able to watch it tomorrow or it's not that big of a deal. Like life will go on. <laughs> Sometimes they're disappointed. They can't cope with that. So it feels horrible. So in their mind, in this moment, they have to look at their parent and say, my parent is the enemy. My parent is evil. (laughs) Right. My parent is out to get me. Darth Vader. My parent is completely ruining my life 
for no reason. I don't understand. Why can't I watch the rest of Frozen? My older sister gets to stay up. Why can't I stay up? You know, right. it, it just becomes a complete decompensation of your world. And you can't cope with that as a child in a number of ways. But one of the things you have to reconcile is, well, how do I look at daddy if he is both all good and all bad? Right. Well, I, this is what we call splitting. So people, the children will split. They, they will actually see dad as two different people. <laughs> there's beautiful, wonderful dad. And, and then there's horrible, evil dad. Then there's evil dad. There's a good witch of the north and the evil witch of the west. <laughs> Uh, there's Luke Skywalker and there's Darth Vader or there's Darth Vader and there's Anakin. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we children actually will interface with each of those objects in completely different ways. Hmm. Cause children, they'll get violent with you sometimes when they're upset, they'll hit you, they'll right. kick you, they'll scream, they'll spit in your face, they'll grab at you, they'll pull your hair They're And if they were bigger, You'd get messed up. Yeah. But when they're two and a half, it's quaint. Yeah. But in those moments, they're rageful. They hate you. Yeah. They'll even say so. I hope you get run over by a truck. Yeah. You know, the, the, and it's not jokes. You know, the, nope. the kids, the, because all of the times you have disappointed this child are now coming back, you know, and, and you are the evil daddy. And then the next day, they're fine. And how can they do that? Well, it's because they've put aside the, you're, the bad daddy. You're and now, now you're good daddy. Now you're good daddy. Well, if everything goes well, you integrate and those two objects, the good dad and the bad dad, the good mom, the bad mom, where it's the same person. Right. You can see how, and it's, it's a little depressing because good daddy is so good and so safe and so wonderful and all loving and all there. But to graduate to a more mature level, you have to accept that good daddy has bad dad qualities. Right. That's kind of shitty. You know, it's kind of sad, kind of depressing. But you don't have to have this notion that there's an evil dad. It's just like he's he's just disappointing sometimes, you know. Yeah. And he's a kind of a human being. He gets he gets overwhelmed sometimes. Anyway. So if if everything goes well, you integrate the two. But if everything, in order for things to go well, you have to have contact, you have to have attunement, you have to have love, you have to have yeah. practice, you have to have examples. If you're neglected, you retain sometimes the splitting mindset. Mm. You, you not only retain the mindset of black and white and all good, all bad, but you also retain the defense mechanism of splitting where you actually cannot reconcile good with bad. Right. So you will idealize some things and a hundred percent dehumanize or devalue another thing and yourself is wrapped up in this as well so it's not just your parents but it, because you're undifferentiated as a child everything reflects on you so when good daddy is paying attention to me then i am also all good all daddy is all good and i am all good and there's nothing wrong with me and there's nothing wrong with daddy daddy is disappointing me in this moment daddy is all bad and i'm all bad Right. My life is falling apart. There's nothing good about me. There's nothing good about him. There's nothing good about my life. There's nothing good in the world. Right. And and uh, and that's the two-year-old mindset. And we expect that black, black and white. But if you're not attuned to enough or you're abused or abandoned or something. That carries over. You can be 25 years old or 20 years old and still feel like there's a version of me that is all good and there's a version of me that's all bad. And, and, and I can't hate the all bad part of me yeah 
but I am glorious and I am wonderful and I am the savior. <laughs> I'm the savior of the world, but I hate this. You know, this I'm describing narcissism, but there, there are other versions of this. You know, there's actually a borderline version of this where the r- romantic partner or the attachment figure is all good. And then as soon as there's a mild disappointment, it's all bad. Mm. And so the, again, speculations upon speculations. Osama bin Laden had at least a version of this and split into Islam and fundamentalism is all good. And as the West or even Russia, you know, just everything outside of the Islamic world is all bad. And I need to destroy the all bad and I need to elevate the all good. And I can only exist as an all good person, you know, in the same way that the all that the child, the two year old wants to be with the good dad so that the child can feel good about themselves. The splitting adult might want to absorb the idealized fundamentalist culture so that he can feel like he's good and he needs to attack the bad. Right. Because that is that by contrast defines the good anyway am i making sense yep yep i get it it's it's basically a version it's a little bit like you you know you we think back of memories that left an imprint when we were kids and i've talked a lot about like little moments that happened um i one of the moments i've talked about is when i was so upset that my grandma finished a little lego house without me right and i destroyed the house right well, I can now look back on that moment and understand all the nuances about it and, and feel bad and happy and sad and, and all that richness of that. But in the moment, grandma was all bad. I was all bad. The house was all bad. The world was ending. Yeah. And if I had carried that forward and I couldn't distinguish, that would be very Yeah, that's dangerous. a good example. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, hopefully 10 years later... You come downstairs or you walk in the house and your grandma has worked on the Lego thing or right. some other thing that you wanted to do. And you, you'll you feel a little tinge of disappointment. Right. A little like, oh, I am being stepped over. I'm being ignored. My needs aren't being heard. I'm being left out. And I feel hurt. But, and I know my grandma's a good person but I also know my grandma can be a little short-sighted and maybe even a little neglectful of me. Right. But not entirely. In this moment, she's letting me down. In this moment, it's a mild hurt. But, you know, what's the bigger picture here? What do I say? How do, you know, that well, kind And of- now as, as we're talking about it, I, I, I think for the combination of things that went into my head, I'd actually have, I struggled with that quite well into my adulthood because those feelings of being feeling left out and things like that that was something i had a hard time dealing with and i remember distinctly that it's only been like maybe the last decade that i finally started being able to be okay when i was left out you know moments so, where i'm like oh i wasn't invited to that okay that's okay so in the splitting linguistic system when you're invited and involved and included they are all good and you're all good. Yeah. But when you're excluded, they are all bad and you are all bad. Yeah. Not every aspect of my life did I have these kinds of issues with, but certain ones I did. And being left out was definitely a pain point for me. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember even in my 20s, like um, something where maybe someone set up a movie thing and three of my friends went and then I find out that they went without me. And this isn't something that happened frequently, but if it did happen, I would feel so betrayed or something, you know? And the the explanation was super trivial. It's like, oh yeah, well, because we were eating and then we were like, hey, let's go do this. You, you weren't there. But in my mind, I'm like, this is like really egregious. Like, um, And even with even simpler things, like uh, they started like they started to cook without me or they started a thing without like something was started without me and then i remember how i would actually do things that i would have hated for example me and mitch we were collaborating on a song and he went to bed and i stayed up and i worked through the night and i finished the song by myself and the next day i showed him the finished work and he was like oh cool but so 1979 he's a devout fundamentalist muslim by this point and he's, you know, 22 years old. Russia invades Afghanistan, and there's this movement of, like, we have to help Afghanistan from the imperialist, you know, colonizers of USSR and Russia. And so he goes to Afghanistan. And, and this is what, when you really say, whoa, there's something different about this mm. guy. He is a essentially one you know, degree off of a prince in Saudi Arabia. Right. Millions upon millions of dollars can do whatever he wants. Doesn't have to work for the rest of his life. His father is, is dead. He has, he has inherited a bunch of money. Right. So he doesn't even have to please his dad anymore. He can just sit back like probably hundreds of other dudes in his cohort. And instead he goes to war with Russia. With Russia. Yeah. With the USSR. In a country that's not his home country. In a country that's not his home country. In the mountains of Afghanistan, which right. there's a reason why no one, no foreign colonial power has ever been able to tame right. the mountains of Afghanistan. It's because it is terrible to live there or to uh, travel there if you're not used to it. Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes to Afghanistan... And brings his money and his resources and his uh, know-how for camping. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the U.S. comes to him and says, among other people in Afghanistan, and says, you are our ally. Right. You are Enemy our, of my enemy. You're my brother. We yeah. are here to help you. We believe in freedom. We believe in helping the underprivileged. We are the saviors. We are going to give you money and intelligence and weapons and uh, Osama bin Laden and the United States at this point are, you know, dependent on each other, best friends. I mean, it, to be at war with, to have allies in war is one of the deepest relationships you can have. The, imagine you're in the mountains and you get a supply dump from the United States of food yeah. and how important that would be. And if you're if, if you're United States and you just depend on these the Muajdin Muha Muajdin yeah Muadib <laughs> no yeah Muajdin um, yeah there you go uh, they you know it's it's mutual respect and and kind of like love in a sense and and attention kind again total speculation kind of like a father now now question. Because we don't know for sure, and we probably never would know, which came first, chicken or egg. 
unless we know for a fact, but I don't see how he would. Because it's, it's also possible that the CIA recruited him because they profiled him and they're like, well, we could use this guy. Yeah. Well, even if that was the case. Before he went to Afghanistan. Even if that was the case, he clearly was ready to do something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so he has meaning now. He has purpose. Not only is he, uh, and the speculation that this author, uh, Colin Ross, makes is that he's try he's always trying to get his father's love. Yeah, you know, I did a psychohistory of uh, Donald Trump uh, a while back, and Trump has a you know emotionally a similar story. Yeah, his father was ne- was never around, and when he was, reportedly by people in the family. He was um, distant and potentially off-putting. He encouraged fighting among the siblings, and Donald was kind of like a lost child because he's one of the, the dummy. He was one of the the young, the later-born kids. He's the dummy. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, but th- but all that happens later. So he's so Donald is born, and he gets a year of his mom. And and reportedly his mom was pretty cold and not such a great parent. She was nice, but she wasn't like very loving. Then Donald Trump's mom became extremely sick, almost died giving birth to Donald's younger brother. And is in the hospital for a year. You know, this is back in the 50s or yeah. uh, 40, uh, I guess a bit in the 40s when you you didn't you just went to the hospital and disappeared like yeah. the, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of visitation and so Donald was raised by his older sister I think the federal judge one who you know didn't really care about taking care of her younger brother right. you know because she's without her mom and dad isn't around anyway so she doesn't have a lot of resources to give so Donald is fed but not loved yep. so Donald from one to two has no mother and no father Jeez. and has a and has an older sister who is basically just feeding him that is going to take an emotional toll on you Ooh. and that is going to make you potentially develop a schema of I'm worthless I need to assert my dominance to have some kind of self-esteem and I'm going to have a dad complex where I'm going to be constantly trying to impress him by driving forward at any cost yeah to, I will mow over anyone. I will bulldoze anyone or anything to reach the goal, and I'll never get to the finish line because I'm never going to get my right. dad's my dad's. And especially love. in that business context of his dad's, you know, right? Like he's a big successful business. I'll I'll become the best business guy ever. Yeah, yeah. I will become the most religiously devout person on right. the planet. I will dedicate myself to one of the most desperate causes in on the planet for my religion. And maybe I will get the love of my father who has died, by the way, again, total speculation. Yeah. Who knows? Um, 1989, 10 years later, Muha, Muha, hit Mujahideen. 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 Oh, God, we're terrible. Uh, expelled from Russia, expelled Russia from Afghanistan, and the U.S. just walked away. Yeah. They just, okay, good. That's all we cared about. Right. We didn't really care about Afghanistan. We didn't really care about, you know, Osama bin Laden. We and just, now they're our friends. They're our allies. We, we have just, allies for life. We just don't want Russia to have access to warm ports. <laughs> That's yeah. all we care about. <laughs> We're just trying to, you know, it's just self-serving. And so 
total speculation, maybe Osama bin Laden's like father U.S. Because this point, you know, U.S. is like a dear yeah. friend in the same way that to Saddam Hussein, the United States was a dear friend, a savior, yeah. you know, really. And father just up and leaves, just yeah. disappears, you know, drifts into the mist and now you're abandoned. Okay, fast forward another year after that, 1990, Saddam Hussein evades Kuwait. And I find this to be really interesting that 1989 is when Russia withdraws from Afghanistan. And then in 1990, a year later, is when Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. To me, those things are way further apart than they are actually. The Saudis were terrified that Saddam Hussein was going to invade Saudi Arabia because it's right there. And they have this huge border to Kuwait and Iraq, right? And Osama comes in and says, hey, I kicked out Russia from... uh, the Afghanistan. Right. I can bring all my warriors. You can certainly kick out Iraq. And we have another cause here, and so we gotta go after Iraq. And by the way, Saddam is saying another ally United States prior to this. And so um he offers the royal family to drive Saddam back and he's rejected. You know, probably because they're like we don't think you're going to succeed because <laughs> yeah. you know you're mountain fighters against tanks and all this other stuff. But but anyway, he's rejected, and instead, the royal family of Saudi Arabia goes to George Bush right. and says, please help us. Again, total speculation, another feeling of rejection, another feeling like you're being left out. You don't have a purpose anymore. You've won the war, you know? It, there's I can't remember the saying. There's some saying of, like, what do you do with the generals after yeah, yeah, yeah. after exactly. the war is over? You know, you, we've, we've created monsters that right. have this, that are so beloved and needed during time of war. And then as soon as the war is over, it's just like they're, they're a monster. They're like, they're a walking disaster, you know? Uh, maybe that was a son. Because, you know, what do you do after that? Does he go back to Saudi Arabia and study history? Does he start a business? You know, he's in, he's in the, his purpose in life is to expel the oppressors. That's right. where he got his self-esteem. And then instead he sees the U.S. Army blowing up fields and doing things and attacking on quote unquote their soil so then it becomes the cause it's like right get out of you know especially saudi arabia you know because that's where all of our most of our a lot of our troops were stationed and i didn't know that aspect that that he offered help i know that's key right (laughs) so fast forward 1999 uh, by now he's back in Afghanistan, back wh- where he feels accepted for the first time in his life, maybe. Right. He's beloved. He's a hero, a national hero to Afghanistan. And and the Taliban by now is controlling 90% of Afghanistan. And then we have the, you know, emerging ideas of attacking the United States. And then 9-11 happens. I mean, I'm fast-forwarding through quite a bit, but... But but it is also interesting that the um, like it you know maybe it's because of his connections and everything, but so much of it came from Saudi as well. So, anyways, yeah. So th- this paints a very interesting picture, which is um, like because I knew about the complaints, but I didn't know about the psychology behind the complaints. Right. And that's fascinating. Right. When you learn about, because look at you, right? You yeah. were abandoned by your mom at the age of four. And just think about how many aspects of your life 
were colored right. subconsciously by that experience. You know, for example, your spending compulsion. Yeah. Uh, we were winding the clock back and we're asking 25-year-old Umberto, like, why are you buying that thing for thousands of dollars? You'd be like, because I need it. Like, you yeah. wouldn't say, well, because my mom abandoned me when <laughs> I was four. <laughs> like, you, you just say, well, this is, this is who I am. Yeah. You're asking me to do something that isn't who I am. This is, this is the meaning of my in, life. In fact, I was self-righteous about my decisions. Right. Like, it was... You could see the same zeal, right? Yeah. The same kind of zeal we're talking and, about. And, and, a, and a denial uh, system that uh, that upholds the coping yeah. because it's all you have. Like right. w- without that spending compulsion, you have nothing. You, right. have, you don't have anything to do to pump up your self-esteem. Right. You know, and, or, or other, you don't have, aside from other few, you know, <laughs> destructive things. Which is interesting. There's also um, another connection that I, I just made was that there was always something bad happening when I was growing up. There's always something bad happening. So I, I probably became uneasy when bad things weren't happening. Hmm. So like going to work, nothing bad happened. I got money in the bank. Nothing bad is happening. So what, would you do anything to cope with that? No. But I think the way to cope with it was... Distraction. I need to make something happen... I wouldn't call it something bad, of course. I wouldn't say, ooh, nothing bad is happening. I better go cause bad problems. No, instead it was like, subconsciously, I'm like getting antsy and something needs to happen. Yeah. Something needs to happen. Right. The Who knows? But the speculation about that is it. we feel more relaxed when we're in control of the self-destruction than when the destruction comes from the outside and it's unpredictable. Right. So if, if we have Osama uh, bin Laden sitting there going, okay, uh, I took back Afghanistan. They took, they rejected me. I guess I'll just chill out. Right. Oh gosh, I'm antsy. I'm anxious. This is not, something must be done. Right. I, I, I know there's an injustice that I yes. need to fight. And, and, and then you get self-righteous about it. You, you, you make the reason make sense. Right. And, and people come to him and be like, I don't know if this is the road to go down. And he's, he, you know, now, Again, this whole time, he's a massively rich, privileged person and with probably a lot of yes-men. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I, and, and, and people like us, and I'm not putting myself in the same boat, but I could be convincing to both to myself and others in the moment, not to you probably at the time. If you had met me, you might have, well, I don't know at that age, but certainly I could make arguments that would sound convincing as to why I was perfectly entitled to do whatever I was doing. Right. So when it comes to people like you and me, we can have that speculation pretty comfortably. But when it comes to someone like Osama bin Laden, we're like, but we can't, it's not the same thing, right? But I, th- I think it is the same thing potentially. And, and there's a lot of speculation that we have to you know, do yeah. in order to even have a conversation about Osama bin Laden's factors. Right. But, but I think it's there. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't to justify. <laughs> this isn't to let him off the hook. Um, if any of us, regardless of why, cause murder and mayhem and, and terrorism, that's on us. We're responsible for that. And, and, it, and the buck stops with us. But I hope if you listen to this podcast, you at least hold the idea that our behavior as adults aren't entirely 
divorced from our childhood schemas and complexes. Absolutely. So let's get into some research uh, here on 9-11. I read many, many articles, and there's a lot of research on 9-11 and psychology and social psychology, but here are just some highlights that I found to be interesting. Main long-term effects, psychological effects of those directly or indirectly involved with 9-11, like people in New York or first responders or military people, you have prolonged grief, you have complicated grief, you have PTSD, obviously, you have depression, anxiety, and lower life satisfaction. Um, so I feel like that just just to be mentioned, but I think it's obvious. Uh, Berto, question, percentage-wise, the prevalence of PTSD among individuals who are directly exposed to the World Trade Center events, like tower survivors, first responders, residents, and local workers, so people right down there at ground zero, percentage of those people who, who had PTSD years later? I'm going to say 60%. It's uh, Different studies show different figures between 5% and 29%, so pretty okay, big, pretty Pretty big range there. Big range, but also much better than I would. Yeah, well, it might help to understand that to qualify for the full-blown diagnosis of PTSD, you've got to have some serious symptoms. If now 60% of people might be affected, might have some trauma reactivity, but not full-blown. I mean, full-blown PTSD is is debilitating. There was a study that found that Mothers who had uh, who were pregnant during 9-11 had signs of biological stress and parenting issues and that the kids were affected mm-hmm. by those biological things. Um, many studies showing that after events like 9-11, where there's some kind of um, attack like this, that there's a strong desire for revenge. So they Makes will, uh, in the lab, have... You know, they'll prime someone with, like, you know, there's an earthquake in your town, and then ask questions around, like, uh, or they'll do a lab experiment where they'll be like, oh, someone took something from you. How badly do you want to take something back from them? Right. And they find that there's a much bigger signal of revenge motivation, re- regardless of whether or not it makes any logical sense. And this is all these studies are trying to uh, make the point of why did we invade Iraq? Iraq. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, but we have a we have a bias, you know. Yeah. We we have this, you know, need, and I don't know if it's exactly related, but you know, if I drop a tool on my foot, I want to punch something. Right? <laughs> Why? You know what? What good does that do? And I think it's that that satisfaction of if I'm wronged, I'm going to wrong someone else. And, and I do think that there's a difference between. Um, and I don't have, care. I don't care who it is, whether they're related to it or not. You know? Right. I think there's a difference between preventative measures versus revenge. Right. Now they could overlap. Right. Like for example, you might say, "This person just killed someone. We need to put them in jail for the rest of their life." And many people might be like, "Yes, revenge," but it was also a preventative measure for society. And so those two might overlap. So uh, I think sometimes, though, we go overboard in our desire for revenge. Yeah. And before we get emails, Berto and I understand the problems with the prison system. Uh, Berto fully understands it. So, uh, you know, we understand that, for example, being caught with weed a few times doesn't justify (laughs) 15 years in prison. uh, And that 
when you disenfranchise particularly groups of people with harsh prison sentences, it causes them to have economic strife, which causes them to create more reasons to commit crimes and, and drug abuse and, and, you know, just is a cycle that goes on. Yeah, on. The, the example in the reaction to 9-11 is I think we sort of had no choice but to go to Afghanistan and see what we could do to quell the cells that were plotting things like 9-11. Right, because and the it, idea was, and and I, I'm not an expert, but and I remember Wyatt talking about this, that, right, there were militant organized, well-funded right. groups in right. Afghanistan that were under the protection of the Taliban who were absolutely in connection with the attack on 9-11 in the Pentagon. I mean, just imagine yeah. a group in, in Afghanistan manages to attack the Pentagon and New York right. City. Uh, yeah, we're going to do something about it. What, you know, right. whether... It, Best case scenario, tal- you know, the Taliban does something and offers them up, right. but they weren't going to do that. Now, we didn't do all the smart things we could have, should have, would have, because, like, for example, one way to defund part of the problem would have been doing something about the drug trade, because that was funding a lot. Another way would have been to go after the Saudi money that was flowing, and so forth, right? However, and by the way, I'm not saying it was justified. I, I actually don't know. I'm not an expert. That's not my yeah. area. But But what I'm trying to get at is, but then, then you start overreacting, and you're like, "Well, now we should also invade this other country. Now we should do more. Now we should go years yeah. and decades." I mean, and, so a very simplistic, like, a simplistic way of describing the Iraq invasion was: you're on the playground, and a bully walks up to you and pushes you down a hill, and everyone laughs at you, and you get up and you go to the principal and you tell on the bully. And the principal's like, okay, well, you know, I, I don't know. I'm hearing two different stories. And you're frustrated and you walk out of the principal's office and you find a smaller kid and you push him down a hill. Yeah. That's essentially the one way of looking at what happened. It could even be another bully, by the way, because certainly uh, <laughs> there were bullies in Iraq. But that wasn't the bully that pushed you. <laughs> right. You just walked outside. You're frustrated yeah. about one bully and you just walked outside and pushed another person down a hill. Yeah. Um, Singh et al. 2020 study found what percentage of World Trade Center exposed New York City rescue and recovery workers screened positive for PTSD the year following 9-11? So if it was uh, 5 to 20, I'm going to go 30%. 10%. Okay. So uh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 10% of a population experiencing PTSD is really bad. Is rough. Light et al. 2019 found that after 9-11, the sentencing gap between citizens and non-citizens widened significantly in the New York area. Hmm. So prior to, prior to 9-11, 36% of those sentenced in the U.S. district court were non-U.S. citizens. And by 2010, non-citizens made up 48%. So hmm. there's this... It's hard to know because it's not a sure. cause, causal study, but... It's possible that because of either anti-immigrant or anti-xenophobia you know, xenophobia sure. happening or just a bias, which I'll get into later, about when we feel like our tribe is being attacked, we, we have this bias of anti-foreigners, yep. even if it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like it'd be like Japan bombs Pearl Harbor and we hate Canadians. 
You know and, what I mean? And, right. And it also could be so because it could have been at the at like the judicial system, but it could have also been at the policing side, right? Like more people could have been being rounded up, right? That were uh, for which I remember very well. Right. I mean, I remember after nine eleven, like. So I, I didn't talk about this part of my experience with nine eleven. So right after nine eleven, you know, after the dust kind of started to settle, I thought because Paris uh, marched for us, right? Um, Russia cried for us. Colombia cried. You know, the yeah. world cried for the United States for Americans, right? For, for a the, second, people had empathy for the U.S. For a second, yeah. we were the the sad kid who was pushed down the hill and everyone right. loved us and Whereas felt normally we're the bully <laughs> normally we're the bully. And I, and I, for the first time I felt like people like us. Yeah. And I thought now is the time that we have to capitalize on that by not acting like a fucking bully. Yeah. We have to be the, the safe people, the, the pacifists, right. the, the good kid, the kid who who rises above and says, I'm not, you know, I'll turn the other cheek. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I'm not going to strike back with all the might of the military and, and these really ridiculous, I'll, I'll be the smart, um, powerful kid on the hill. Um, and then as soon as we started talking about invasion and, as, and as particularly as we started invading, we were right back to everyone hating us yeah, again. Of course. And I, I just remember thinking what an opportunity lost because I also thought if we're liked and we act like pacifists or at least careful with our military, yeah. the, these terrorists don't have a reason to kill us. Well, again. they don't have as much propaganda they can use. Right. Yeah. But if we invade, it just is I, a, it, they're, we're making their point. <laughs> Iraq became the biggest recruitment video of all time. Right? Yeah. 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 And so, you know timely in the news right now we pulled out of afghanistan and the all the news is like taliban's taken over yeah uh, do you know anything about that yeah it's again so complicated because um i think there was clearly some broken telephone happening at our leadership here because i i'm not saying about the decision to pull out but the expectations that were communicated publicly were so unrealistic like, it, like Taliban's not going to no. Take over. This is the scenario where you know Friday we pull out, Monday they've taken over. That could never happen. Like literally, that's what happened. So I am very disappointed in someone didn't listen once again. This happens all the time because I guarantee you there were people all throughout the organization probably raising flags saying, "Here's the risks." Right. At the same time, like my initial reaction when I heard about the mess was to go, "How could we?" fail so badly then as i as i looked more into it and i listened i listened to biden i listened to more i was like okay we definitely screwed up both our understanding of what was going to happen as well as our messaging but what were what was our plan right so what that were we gonna do right so that <laughs> and of course my friend who died in afghanistan like why was he there right why did he die was it completely meaningless not only trillions of dollars that you and I spent of our money yeah. on that war, but also all the death of Americans and the death of Afghanistani people, Af Afghani people, the, the bad press around the world of us occupying another country, um, causing another generation of, 
of terror or people who hate us in Afghanistan. You know, like, what are we doing? And 20 years later, it's like, well, we just left and it just went back to the way it was. It might even be worse. And it's Vietnam all over again. And have we learned nothing? Well, and Vietnam didn't necessarily have a bone to pick with us directly, whereas they now do. Right. I mean, anyway, so it's, there's a, it's, it's just a lot. But then, but then I wonder, well, why were we there in the first, you know, what was the, was it in a similar way of Vietnam? Was it ever achievable? Was it, because our, our mission was to democratize and to kind of westernize. Well, but it depends who you talk to, because I heard some military analysts that were there at the beginning and stuff, and they made some cogent points about how, look, our mission, you know, from their perspective, was to go and neutralize these cells and prevent another 9-11. And to their point, we haven't had a 9-11 in 20 years. Now, the problem is, of course, now what happens, we don't know. Right. So we could, mission accomplished, maybe for twenty years, and uh, you could also argue that for twenty years, progression was happening in the Afghani for for Afghani right. people and women specifically. Right. So that's the uh, maybe the silver lining of like maybe in another twenty years it'll it'll bend towards justice for women and, and other kinds because of because maybe they've tasted right a better reality and now there's enough. I mean internal. Is that rebellion. just us, you know, putting sunshine up our butt or, you know? No, our- no I mean, I'm not being optimistic about it. I'm just saying, because, you know, we like to be very relativistic. Well, different societies and stuff. But I, I can't because my religion, if you will, is that I lean towards, like, constructive rather than destructive. And when I look at a society that treats one portion, one half of its society as an inferior uh, I, I think, yeah, that's destructive. And so to me, it was definitely a net positive for women. Well, I don't know, but maybe there was a seed planted there. Maybe. And maybe that's going to cause a lot of strife and civil war. But maybe they can come out on top in the end. Yeah. All I know is that I'm confused. I'm sad. I'm potentially angry about my friend dying for no reason. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly upset on behalf of his family and and people really close to Wyatt who are asking these questions of because when Wyatt died 10 years ago there was still and maybe more so hope that there would be some long-lasting positive effect on the society well I think a lot of us had come to believe I certainly had that Iraq aside, Afghanistan, we at least had done some good. (laughs) Right. And so when Wyatt died, it was like, well, he died for a good reason. Right. And and, uh, seemingly. And and Wyatt would have agreed back then because he talked about how he might die. But now we have to say, did he? Was it worth it? Was any of the action worth it? I kind of, you have to, so for me, I have to say yes, because it's like this. The whole thing about uh, a terrorist criminal comes up and says, uh, you know, if you don't do blah, I'm going to kill these people, right? And then you stand your ground and then they kill the people. And they're like, because of your actions, those people died. It's like, no, because of your actions, Mr. or Mrs. Terrorist, those people died. And that's the reality. 
the, the whole scenario. Aliens come down. If you don't sacrifice a child, we'll kill a million humans. Like, well, we don't sacrifice children for you. Well, we'll kill a million humans. That's on you. It's like, no, it's on you, evil aliens. And we stand our ground on these facts. And, and so we could look at it like we failed. Like, well, maybe. But at the same time, we're, we're not the ones taking over a country and, and, and essentially impoverishing the culture of, of part of that population or, or maybe the whole population. And, we, and we, to some extent, we might not be able to do anything about it. There is a different way we could have approached it, which was actually trying to really take over the country and incorporate it into the United States and have a whole other, and that's a whole other mess, right? And people would have hated us for that. And so I, I, I don't know that there was a way to permanently solve this. I think the hope was, and it didn't pan out, that we had planted enough seeds that would have prevented an immediate takeover. That clearly didn't happen. But maybe the seeds are there and it'll just going to take, take a long time. I don't know. Yeah. But I don't, see it, I don't see it as a waste. I don't think it's... I, I will not. Yeah. Well, so tougher bluff, Berto. The 9-11 uh, attacks were the deadliest terrorist events ever... Or the deadliest uh, attacks on uh, ever to occur on U.S. soil. Tougher bluff. The deadliest attacks most, on... Most killed. Most killed? Um, 3,000, I don't know how many died at Pearl Harbor, so I'm going to go bluff? Tough. More, oh, more, tough. more than Pearl okay. Harbor. Okay. So 9-11 was about 3,000 and okay. Pearl Harbor was about 2,400. Okay. And we don't really have many other attacks. The J- no, Japan no. attacked the Aleutian Islands in, in Alaska. I don't know how many people they killed up there. Okay. Um, but we have... Uh, we have so many people, but so few events where people yeah. are attacked on our soil. Which is why it was so shocking. <laughs> right. Uh, which should put in perspective other countries, you know, like China and Russia and Japan right. and Germany and Poland. and Where their attacks are in the millions. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's like yeah. our two worst events are 3,000 and 2,400. Yeah. Um, not to say it wasn't bad, but right. it should give you some perspective on the multi-generational traumas that other societies are experiencing. So I want to... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Silly us imperialists. I, I will make a small point here. The biggest uh, casualties on uh, American soil are probably Native Americans. Native Americans. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. In, but in a single event, I don't, I don't know if... Who knows? I don't know how many were killed in any single event. Yeah. I mean, the Civil War, for example, killed hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. but, uh, but... But it was internal. Uh, but like a, a... Right. Yeah. 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 You're right. <laughs> Thanks. I don't know. Before we get emails, thank you for... <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to talk about terror management theory developed by Ernest Becker in 1971. Essentially, the idea goes is that we're interested in self-preservation as you know most animals are and uh the difference about humans is that we recognize our death is inevitable yeah. and so we are faced with a desperate need to survive and a desperate understanding of our death okay so a question there because it's a rash it's um it's a metaphor version of it because clearly animals have the instincts to avoid the peril 
at all costs. Mm-hmm. I mean, not always, but you know. Yeah. So, but for us, there's not only those instincts, but then there's all these superset of, of like language and culture and things about about it and about what it means to lose our families and it means to lose our memories and it means to lose our. Well, the intermediary <laughs> factor there is that by a certain age, we have the cognitive ability to abstract from all the data that I am going to be dead right. one day. Well, that's a good point. That an animal is aware, at least instinctually, in the moment about the threat, but they're not sitting there going like, hmm, I'm going to die not, someday. They're not sophisticated enough yeah. to know or sophisticated enough to kind of wrap their mind around the oh, idea that we know right so some animals might like dolphins chimpanzees others might yeah i don't know the research on that but humans definitely if those more advanced animals have a a slight notion of that they definitely have a notion of others deaths you know chimps when they have a a tribe member that dies they definitely understand that person is dead you know that that my buddy or my mom or my child is dead and they they understand they seem they exhibit similar things of humans like where they grieve and they they wail and they spend time with yeah and so they definitely understand death but do they extrapolate from that and say so i'm gonna be dead one day yeah like what i don't know is like clearly well i don't know clearly but when you watch cows right cows are not aware that not only are they seeing their fellow cows disappear day by day they're going to be taken and killed, right? But in the moment, they get like panicked because right. they're like, "What's what's happening? What's happening? I'm in threat! I'm in threat! I'm, I'm in threat! I'm a threat! I'm right. a threat!" But do they know that they're going to die? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. But but I wonder, like in a commune of chimpanzees, if if they saw the writing on, like, yeah, it's it's impossible. But, but again, them. even if they did have a slight notion of it, humans. Definitely, definitely yes. have a lot. And they write lot. poems and songs yeah. and books. And we, we have drawings and so art. much knowledge yeah. of our death and, and not and create re- whole stories about what happens after the death. So that's it's, what terror management theory explains, attempts to explain. It's a model of understanding. It's, it's managing the terror of the existential threat that is exhibited by religion and the afterlife and art and trying to establish meaning and legacy. You know, chimps probably don't care about passing on the family name. You know, humans are, especially in some societies, really interested in, like, having a family name or having children who uh, feeling like, you know, one of the Hmm. things that you'll see in humans is, like, they'll have some problems with infertility. And you think, well, why don't you just adopt? And certainly some people do. But a lot of people are like, but I want the baby to be mine. You know, so we have the idea within terror management theory is that hmm. immortality, it, it, there are many ways to immortality. And that is a way of us coping with the knowledge of our death. Yeah, you could imagine some advanced civilizations getting to a point where they have consciousness, they have civilization culture. But they're unable to guarantee that the majority of their citizens um, don't fall into nihilistic despair about the realization. Because we have members of our society that do. They fall into nihilistic desperation. They are some of the killers you know, that, that go on rampages and things. Where they get to a point where they're like, 
nothing matters. I'm going to die. Like I've had conversations with people that have that perspective. It's like, ugh, nothing matters. We're all going to die. I'm dead anyways. You know, but luck, lucky for us, for us humans, a majority of humans don't fall into that constant pit of despair day to day and just keep going. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine other types of advanced civilizations that could have sprung up and didn't have that for whatever combination of factors, mm-hmm. and then they die off because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that or every civilization causes a runaway greenhouse effect, yeah, and yeah. everyone burns yeah. up in a fiery mess. But so there's been some research on this terror management theory. Burke, Martin, and Foucher, uh, 2010. Uh, in this study, they momentarily make death salient in the participants' minds. Mm-hmm. You know they somehow have a way of reminding the participants that they're all going to die. Oh, they ask people to think about themselves dying. They prompt them. It's like, you know, think about when you're going to die. Okay. And then it magnifies positive reactions to those who uphold cherished cultural values, as well as negative reactions to those who oppose such values. Oh, interesting. Right. So they prompt the participants, think about your own death. And then they ask them a bunch of questions like, how do you feel about, the American flag. Yeah. How do you feel about freedom? How do you feel about football, American football? <laughs> How do you feel about Ford trucks or whatever? Right. Uh, American pie. Uh, how do you feel about uh, Muslims? How do you feel about right. uh, foreign flags? And they find that compared to the control group for those people that think about their own death are much more you know, precious about their cherished cultural values and much more hateful or, of, or yeah, of a po- just <laughs> by the prompting of your death. So when you have a terrorist attack and all of a sudden all the Americans are contemplating our own deaths, yeah, we see what we saw. Right. Greenberg et al. 1990 study found that Christian participants had more favorable reactions to fellow Christians and had less favorable reactions to Jewish targets when they were thinking about their own deaths. American participants had more favorable reactions to the author of an essay praising the United States and more negative reactions to the, to the author of an essay critical of the United States. So when we're not thinking about our deaths, we're more open. Right. We're more like, well, maybe there are other points. And, and these, the, the, the important thing of these studies and this theory is like, it's not connected. These things aren't connected, you know, right. for, some Americans to be like, there's a terrorist cell in Afghanistan that attacked us. I want to. Inv- I don't like Afghanistan anymore. I want to attack it. Yeah. There's at least some logical connection there, but uh, whether you agree with it or not. But what terror management theory and all these studies are showing is you just thinking about your death yeah. makes you potentially want to invade other countries that have nothing to do with the fact that you're threatened. Yeah. And hence Iraq or. Or hence, even hence the wall, right? Exactly. Like, like okay, we were attacked on nine eleven. Terrorists want to hurt us. The people south of here, yeah, are now evil. <laughs> let's let's elect a jingoistic, yes. xenophobic person who talks about crap countries. Yeah. Uh, yay! Uh, another thing here is the accessibility of implicit death thoughts increases when cherished culture. So so it goes the opposite direction too. So this is what's so fascinating about this research is that when you, th- when you have a threat to your cultural belief system, so say like you're an atheist uh-huh. and someone's like, we're going to make atheism illegal or something, 
then you start thinking about death more death, often. Right, right. That makes sense. That is why th- that definitely helps explain even, why. Even though atheists being illegal wouldn't mean you're going to die. That helps explain why you see uh, people being interviewed about, hey, what do you think of the latest policy or whatever? And instead of saying something like, I think there's a lot of angles to that. I personally don't agree with these aspects. Or you see something like, that's going to be the end of us. This, the, the thing I knew is gone. Yeah. It's these death Right, words. exactly. And, and, and you hear that, and, and as an outsider to that cultural pocket, you're like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I and you are both mixed-ish. I mean, it's what you mean by mixed, but like, yeah. we have white and brown in us. Right. And we are the future. And I remember in the 80s, there was this picture that they came up with of like the typical American a hundred years from now. And I was like, that's me. You know, yeah. it's like, you're, you're a little Brown, you yeah, know, yeah. you're not totally Brown. You're just kind of Brown. And that probably terrified people. So for me, I was like, yay. Yeah. I'm at the, I'll live forever. I'm at the Chevron of, yeah. of a movement to take over the world, but to white people and maybe other culture, other races, it's a threat. And I remember hearing people say like, we have to, preserve our race at any cost and i'm thinking why <laughs> they're still yeah. your descendants just yeah. because your great grandchild right. has a darker tint doesn't mean it's not your great grandchild no, but, but it makes sense because you, so you have this way to realize like okay i am gonna die but i live on because there's constancy to the way of life right and so i wake up in this village and I look around and there's a hut, there's a hut. We go to the same river, we hunt the same things. And when I die, and this is all subconscious, when I die, that will continue. And this my is why... My child will continue. This is why, I don't know why I think of my childhood at a 70s. So I remember learning this idea that it's ideas that bind us as Americans. It's not race. It's not religion. It's not culture. It's ideas, ideas of freedom, ideas of democracy, ideas of fairness, ideas of justice that will survive. And so stop focusing on the color of skin. But it's hard because, so take Moana, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, Why was the dad so terrified to the point of death, right? Because the song they sing, it's tradition, it's our mission, you know, and in the in the song they sing, they talk about all the things they do day after day for generations. And we're gonna put your rock on top of this other rock, and it'll continue on and on. And as soon as someone, in this case Moana, threatens that thought, like wait, we're running out of fish. We might need to look away. We might need to disrupt tradition. It's not, huh? Well, let's talk about it. It's that's death. That is death. Right. And it's so fascinating. You're right because it doesn't make rational sense, right? You're like, and it causes us to do so many stupid things as a yeah. society, especially when we're all collectively terrified. And yeah. the next time this happens, and it will happen again, we need to be rational and listen to the psychoanalysts like me. Anyway, um, another. I'm joking, by the way. The <laughs> other uh, piece of ev- or piece of research here is, and I won't go into full detail because we went out of time. But there's a whole article by Lankford 2018 that looked into the 9-11 attackers because there's this in terms of their psychological profile, you know, because there's all this to talk of like, 
how can you find people that will go on a suicide mission? These people must be suicidal already, right? And then there was all this talk of like, nope, these people are, you know, they're not suicidal. They're not depressed. These people are like mentally resilient people who make a choice and based on their belief system or brainwashing or whatever. And there was, it was, that was the answer. It was like, no, we don't need to look into the psychology of these people. And there's also, I believe, kind of a bias of like, well, people in the Middle East don't have mental illnesses, right? You know what I mean? It's ridiculous, <laughs> right, but I yeah. feel like a lot of... It's a Western problem. Right. It's, I feel like yeah. Americans have a... It's sort of like imagining a man with an eating disorder. Like some people have a really hard time wrapping their heads around that because it's not depicted very often. But of course, men do have eating disorders and people in the Middle, Middle East do have mental right. illnesses. <laughs> and, and clearly, it's not like 100% of the people that join these organizations blow themselves up. Right. There's a, a a percentage that they convince that that's the thing to do. Well, so it's chicken or the egg there too. That people who are attracted to these kinds of missions might have something different about them. Might have a mental illness like, like, sch- like schizophrenia, yeah. or a thought disorder, psych- psychosis, delusion, suicidality, depression, and the brainwashers will have an easier time recruiting those kinds of people and will prey on them because they're more isolated and more prone to thought problems. Well, and and uh, kids from those parts of the world grow up with a lot of the same traumas. Right. Like think, you know, like Uganda. Why are there so many young ch- child soldiers killing each other? Are they, they all must, there must be some genetic problem in that part of the world right. that they're all psychopaths. Yeah. Or they're all traumatized the same way because they're all traumatized the same way. Right. Where life means nothing and survival is... And their parents were traumatized the same way. Right. Yeah. But what Langford found out doing a lot of investigation into the 9-11 attackers, many of whom you would invest, you would interview people that knew them before they died during 9-11, or you would go to Guantanamo Bay and look at the psychology, uh, you know, uh, assessments is that a number of these attackers, uh, if not most of them, had serious mental, or signs really? of serious mental illness. Yeah, psychosis, full-blown schizophrenia oh, in wow. some people, or like low-grade schizophrenia, depression, suicidality, substance uh, use disorders. Interesting. And, um, you know, and that's just one of those things you just don't hear people talking about. No. Like, maybe one way we can fight terrorism is to provide mental health services to certain areas of the world. So I wonder if the same study was done with cults like, the, yeah. you know, if, or if you would QAnon. find a similar thing. You know, the other thing, like QAnon people are just like, how do people believe that Hillary is a lizard person right. and that there are lasers? And every time I hear that, I'm like, have you heard of psychosis? Because there's a lot of people yeah. on the psychotic spectrum in this country, yeah. a pretty sizable percentage, and they're prone to this kind of way of thinking. Right. And when you give them a venue to justify their thought problems and there's lack of a system that will yeah. help them get treated, then you get what you have, you know? And, and th- there's this idea that somehow people who have schizophrenia can't march on Washington. They can march <laughs> on Washington. Yeah. People with schizophrenia who are in the full, you know, or bipolar uh, you know, psychosis right. are in the throes of a massive episode they can march on Washington. They yeah. can go online. They can even run for office and yeah. get votes. Like yeah. it, 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 they're, it, it, they're not, we don't put them in an asylum behind a fence. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it, it's out there and we need to have a way of helping people like this so that they don't 
um, hurt themselves and hurt society yeah. um, in these conspiracy ways. Anyway, I'm not all people with schizophrenia. The vast majority, in fact, everyone that I've known who've had a psychotic disorder would never march on Washington and try to hurt anyone, you know. Um, so I'm not saying that. Anyway, um, so a couple other things. I, I know we're getting long here, Berto, but I really <laughs> feel like we need to get into some of these things. Yes. Two more topics. Um, one is, is why do terrorists attack the U.S.? And I'm just going to race to a psychoanalytic speculation that has to do with humiliation trauma. And I remember think I remember hearing about this a long time ago and it kind of making sense to me. I don't know if it's true because I don't I'm not from these cultures, but there's this idea. And this goes way back to, you know, early psychoanalysis or mid mid-century psychoanalysis where we would uh, in the United States, we'd be treating people and we'd. Uh, you know, like uh, Heinz Cohen would identify narcissism, narcissistic rage and humiliation traumas, this kind of thing. But in a nutshell, the idea is, is that as a child, when you go through a lot of humiliation, that your, your, your healthy narcissism is being attacked. Your healthy self aggrandizement yeah. is being, you know, we all want to like ourselves. We all want to think that we're good at things. And when we're humiliated, it is a trauma to that narcissism, mm-hmm. that healthy narcissism. And so we will strike back with what they will term as narcissistic rage. It's often uh, misunderstood in the Internet, but essentially it's a defense against the humiliation. And so I'm going to I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to attack you. I might even punch you in the face for humiliating me because it's the only way for me to get my self-esteem back. And so the idea goes is that certain areas of the world who in history might have been at the forefront of technology and um, science and military are now not, and they're being colonized. They're being walked on. They're being laughed at. They're being left behind in economy and in technology and in military and in the world stage. And hmm. they uh, feel humiliated. Yeah. They feel like they're being stepped over, like they're being ignored. And there might be a motivation to strike back, to say, I am important. I am strong and I'm, and I, you can't ignore me. And so I'm going to do something to you because that will give us and my group of people, I'm not saying everyone in the military, I'm saying, you know, maybe a, a cultural pocket of a cell in Afghanistan or whatever. And that could be one among many factors including the United States doing horrific things in an imperialistic way that could contribute to this vilification of the United States and wanting to attack it. What do you think, Berto? Yeah, I mean, I I remember growing up in the 80s, um, we would have, there was this sense where we had this love-hate relationship with the United States and Colombia. On the one hand, especially my generation, we really looked up to the the cultural aspects of like the music and the movies and the styles and the fashions. And we copied it and we wanted it, right? We wanted all that stuff. But at the same time, we made fun of gringos, right? Gringos had, uh, gringo humor was stupid. Everything was a pie in the face and dumb. Gringos were generally dumb. They were tall, lumbering, blonde brutes. Like they're just dumb. Um, and so like when we'd have a gringo character in a, in a soap opera in, in Bogota, in Colombia, uh, they were kind of dumb, you know, they were lovable, but dumb. And, um, and you know, at the same time, well, 
the U.S. had uh, helped Panama gain their independence from Colombia, so I'm sure there were bitter feelings there. The U.S. had companies that would exploit workers all over the country and take resources, and, and this was not new. And all of Latin America had that feeling of like, God, this bully up north, you know? But so there was this kind of push-pull, and, and there was a feeling of, um, we have been humiliated, you know, and so we need to humiliate them. So we'll make fun of them in the way we can, which is we'll kind of poke fun at their culture. Right. But we'll still, at the same time, have an obsession with the culture. Right. So it was very dichotomy, like in the head about it. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So possible factor. All right. I'm going to end with a study that was looking at the survivors of 9-11, people who had family members die by Bowen's 2017. And they looked at themes. They looked at a bunch of studies and looked at themes of what people said. And so theme number one is a shared tragedy and invaded privacy. So let me just give a quote from someone. Mine's a public loss. I don't get to grieve privately. I had no private. I would open my mail and there's a picture of the towers with a plane going through it or the towers collapse. We didn't have private grief. There's no such thing as private grief. It's a public thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, and there's more quotes there. A number is theme number two is notifications and bodily remains. This was, this wow. is, this is rough. By the way, trigger alert on this because this is, we got a total of six body parts. Oh, geez. Four times we had to open the grave. The first time, and then three more times. One of the times was just in March. We just got another this year. Yeah, we just buried another piece of him. I couldn't believe we were doing it again. A week later, we got a call. A week after it uh, was in a pap- was in the paper saying they were done identifying. We got a call saying we got another piece. Uh, so just imagine that, Berto. Oh, uh, no. Right? Because... Uh, yeah. You want to honor the peace of your father or your husband or something. Yeah. You don't want to just like say, well, just throw it away. Like, so you got to dig up the grave. So imagine your relative died in a car crash and everywhere around town, the picture of the car crash is everywhere. Right. And it's on TV and not that day, not that week for decades. Right. And like you said, every now and then you get a new package in the mail with it's it's just so horrific. Yeah. Theme number 3 is pers- persistent grief. Someone says, "I don't think anybody finishes with one phase and goes into another phase. You just keep going back and forth. You have days when you really feel so depressed and crappy and then there's other days you can be upbeat." So that's another thing. Number 4 is relationships, secondary changes and losses. Uh, quote, my friend said, ugh, I can't stand to listen to all this 9-11 stuff anymore. Like, enough already. Enough already. Let's move on. And then <laughs> she goes on. I couldn't maintain a friendship with her anymore. It saddened me because I guess she didn't understand the complexity of what my emotions were. Uh, theme number uh, five is comparative and marginalized grief. Quote, yeah, I felt marginalized. I felt, you know, like the siblings were forgotten. The for- So this person was a sibling of someone oh, who would... Okay. Um, you know, like the siblings were forgotten, the forgotten ones. It was always about the children. How are the children doing? Uh, mm. How are your parents doing? Yeah. This is my brother. I grew up with him 36 years, you know. Yeah. Wow. Theme number six, taking action. 
I went and spoke before the New York State Assembly last month, and I had my statement typed. I made a copy of that. So anyway, it's just another theme that they would take action. Number seven is financial compensation. Um, and people that meet me say to me, well, you're, you're well set for life. And I'm like, uh, I said, no, I'm not. I said, I haven't worked in three years. Do you know what three years of not working, hmm. how much money? So anyway, they're talking about how like, because some yeah. of these people got like money. Yeah, right. right. And they're like, um, my life isn't better. <laughs> yeah. Theme eight is 9-11 related supportive groups and services. Um, so they're just talking about how they go to different support groups. Number Theme number nine is remembrance, a quote here. I want I wanted the story to be known about this beautiful bright woman and I wanted to remove some of the pain. So that's another theme. And then the final theme is growth and new perspectives. I, I'm surprised that one of the themes wasn't the um people questioning that it whether it even happened. Because <laughs> So I have a friend, an ex-coworker. Oh, well, I see what you're saying. It's like people saying, like the Alex Jones thing of like... Oh, it, it was even, it was very prevalent at the time and, and even now. Now, actually, probably more than ever. Yeah. But I have a friend who was, uh, who knew... Do you remember the famous story in, in one of the planes? The guy was on the phone and said, let's roll. And then they took down the attackers. And that, I yeah. think that was the Pentagon plane or it was one of the planes. Well, no, it was the... Um, it, it was the other plane. It was the one that fell in the Pennsylvania, yeah. yeah. A, a friend of mine or someone I know knew that person oh. and told me about what, a, what an amazing human being this person was and how he was totally not surprised that that was his attitude in that moment and that that's totally what he would have done, right? And I remember later having a brief conversation about how incensed he was hearing people saying that all these people were not real people and that they were all actors and that all these things. Yeah. And I'm like... So there's that trauma too. Like, not only did you lose your friend, your family, whatever. Now all of a sudden, people. Same thing with Columbine and all this. Like, well, now all of a sudden, the, people are saying, or uh, was that Adam Lanza, the um, the, the little kids, new, new the Connecticut. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. And then people going like, Yeah, no, it didn't happen. It's all actors. It's yeah. fake. Your child that you lost, it's dead. You're faking it. Yeah. So that happened to 9/11 victims too. Yeah. And their families. I mean. Well, anyway, yeah. so. Lots of pain from people who died, obviously, people injured, people close to the people who died, yeah. uh, all the way to you and me who were very peripherally yeah. involved, but yet hurt. Deeply and, affected psychologically. Yeah. And to this day, uh, I, I can't imagine who I'd be without that event. Yeah. It was so life-changing and it's been 20 years and uh what's your final word about it Berto? i can't believe it's been 20 years and when i look back i think wow there's a journey there as a society as a world and then so the, the only thing i hope i really hope that there were seeds planted in afghanistan so that so that things were in a complete waste. And then for us, um, man, are we, uh, that we would be able to go against our natural instincts the next time and, you know, be fair about how we respond to the world. I don't know. Yeah. For me, I'll just speak directly to y'all who are listening right now, whether it's 9 11 
or some other societal fear or just a personal fear, a fear that you're not going to fall asleep tonight, a fear that you're going to get cancer, a fear that your parents are going to die, a fear that your kids aren't going to be happy or something. You know, it's, we live in fear all the time. And when we're alone, we suffer greater when we're together we're afraid huddled but together yeah <laughs> we can't get rid of the fear i don't think we can't get rid of the stakes we can't get rid of political strife we can't get rid of war or killing we can do what we can and i don't say i don't obviously just we're not supposed to give up but what i can say is in the moment right now we can be together in our fear and in our appreciation of each other and in our understanding of each other. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.